Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're starting, we finished um, a couple of weeks ago, we finished our, our series in the book of Acts, 35, I think, sermons in Acts. Uh, we, Lord willing, won't have 35 in Ecclesiastes, uh, but we're beginning um, this series this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, we will read verses 1 through 11, and uh, as you've already figured out, if you're visiting, it's, it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word, and um, we, doing long narratives like Acts, we've kind of gotten away from that because you, nobody wants to stand for an entire chapter. However, for 11 verses, if you're able, uh, let's stand as we read God's Word together. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and Goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who inspired these words, uh, has preserved these words, use them in our own minds and hearts and lives, we pray to the honor and glory of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, so in, in 1970, uh, former Beatle uh, George Harrison released an album uh, called all Things Must Pass. And there's a title track uh, on that album. Also, All Things Must Pass. That's how, a title, tracks, tra how title tracks work. Um, and the song examines the fact that life, all sort of the events that we deal with in life, in some ways he has a little bit of comfort for us. Even as the song says, all things must pass, in a sense, George would look at you and go, well, COVID-19 will one day pass. Part of the song is, look, all the, all the difficult things you're going through in life, all the troubles you face, it's okay. You won't be dealing with that forever. Of course, on the flip side, all the pleasurable things in life, all the things you love and enjoy, and when, when life is going great, well, reality check, that too will pass, George tells us. It's, a, it's really a song that sort of recognizes, it gives hope, I guess, to, 
people in difficult circumstances and a bit of a reality check to those of us who aren't in difficult circumstances in that particular moment. And you notice as you listen to the song, there's a hint of despair in his voice. Yeah, the bad and difficult and painful things of life will go away, and that ought to make him feel better. That ought to help him. That ought to make him sound joyful. But so too, this pleasant experience, this enjoyable part of life, it too will pass, and therefore there's a hint of of despair in his voice. Where's the meaning in life if everything comes and goes? Where's the meaning in life if every single event is its own sort of discrete event and they're just a collection of events that are, that are not connected to one another, just come right after the other? Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And where's the good in that? Where's the meaning in that? Where's the value in that? The reality is musicians do this all the time. You could count any number of songs that evaluate life and wrestle with a sense of meaning, of value, of purpose, of aim. When artists do it, when a musician does it, we actually kind of praise them for being thoughtfully, philosophically self-aware enough to know their struggle. But when we read that in the Bible, we question whether it belongs there at all. When George Harrison does it, it makes sense and we understand because we cannot, I get, I get it. I mean, why in the world would he have any hope or sense of purpose apart from Christ? And yet when the writer of Ecclesiastes asks the exact same questions, makes the same observations, we throw our hands up and go, surely this book doesn't belong in the Bible. And that's been done. I mean, a host of of commentators would go, it's just not even a biblical book because it, it just doesn't fit with the rest of everything we read in Scripture. But in many ways, the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing for us I think in some ways he's giving us freedom to ask difficult questions about life. He's giving us license to examine life around us and then look back at the Bible and go, sometimes what I see doesn't fit what I read. And in many ways, that's the difference between the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is book learning. Ecclesiastes is life learning. It's it's just living life and making observations and, and looking at life through the lens of your eyes rather than through the lens of God's revealed revealed will. And so the preacher writes a lot like a modern philosopher. He explores events, activities, realities, things that we observe with our eyes, things that we experience with our lives. 
and explores the insignificance of life under the sun. Before we get into the book itself, we've got to ask and answer a few questions about the book. First, I want you to notice a little bit about the structure of the book of Ecclesiastes. Notice that in the first 11 verses, all the pronouns are third-person pronouns. We'll get the same thing at the very end of chapter 12. The vast majority of what's between those two passages is first person. In other words, we're reading here uh, something that sounds like a narrator, uh, a collector, someone who has collected the preacher's words and then has written an intro and an outro, a a preface, and a a whatever you call it at the end of the book. Um, And every now and then, only briefly inserts himself into the book itself. A little bit like um, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. Uh, when, when, when Tigger and um, Rue bounce their way up to the top of that tree and get stuck. And then the narrator says, well, Tigger, it looks like your bouncing has gotten you in trouble this time. And Tigger, in, 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 in the movie, it works well. He looks that out at the screen. He goes, well, who are you? And the voice said, well, I'm the narrator. He said, well, how about narrate me down from here? (laughs) He he tells the story, but only rarely sort of steps into the events itself. Of course, what he tells, the story tells, what he writes is absolutely consistent with what the preacher writes in the rest of uh, the book. He's not writing something different. He's not changing anything that the preacher uh, writes, but he seems to have collected the work and, and written the beginning and an end. Well, who is the preacher? I keep saying the word preacher. I keep, I keep using the preacher. If you're using an NIV, uh, it says the teacher. The ESV, the New American Standard, the New King James, they all write the preacher. The Hebrew word really is... Um, It's a noun form of a verb that means to gather people together. So it's someone who speaks to a and in a gathered assembly. Someone who gathers people together and speaks in that context. In fact, the, the name of the book of the Bible for us, Ecclesiastes, comes from a Greek word that means church. Ecclesia. And that's the the Greek word they use to translate this Hebrew word for preacher. So that's why, kind of why we use preacher. It's someone who's gathered in assembly and is, um, is speaking in that context. But who is he? Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, who is king in Jerusalem as a son of David except Solomon? Look down at verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Well, who is known to have gathered more wisdom in the history of mankind than Solomon? So the writer of the book is Solomon, David's son 
Uh, I have to be honest. Uh, most people would disagree with me. Uh, most people argue that, well, verse 1, king in Jerusalem could refer to David and not to the preacher. They argue, verse 16, well, who has, all, uh, wiser than all who have gone before me in Jerusalem? Well, technically, that's just David, because even Saul wasn't king in Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer claims to be king in Jerusalem. He claims to be a son of David. That phrase is only used in the Old Testament to describe literal, actual sons of David. Direct descendants from David. So we have to understand the book claims to be written by Solomon. Uh, we should uh, take the, the book at its face value. What's his worldview? Well, you see it in verse 2. The preacher appears to have this worldview that is common today, and it actually fits with George Harrison's song. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities. It's a, it's a superlative. It's a way of saying meaninglessness of all meaninglessnesses. That's a fun word to say and to write, I might add. But you take all that is and you find that it's vanity. Okay, not Vanity Fair um, and, and not Carly Simon, you're so vain, you know, into yourself. It means the word, the Hebrew word, actually means like you walk outside on a cold morning and you breathe and you see that vapor and it's there for a second and then it's gone. Here, I don't think he's using it in terms of time. I think he's using it in terms of value. It's not just that it's short-lived. It's that it's purposeless. It's meaningless. It's valueless. And so he looks at life. And he says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All is meaningless. All is is." Hevel is the Hebrew word if you want to learn some, some Hebrew. Uh, and in Hebrew, actually, vanity of vanity sounds cool. Havel, havelim. It just, you know, you get that repetitive nature. He looks at life. He examines life under the sun and everything seems to be futile. Pointless. To lack weight and substance. And he gives examples. Look at verse 5. Uh, think about it. The sun, the sun also rises. Literally, the sun also rises, where Hemingway got his title. Uh, the sun also rises, and then it goes down, and then, then, you know, while you're sleeping, it runs across to the other side of the world, only to come back up again and do the exact same thing that it did yesterday. The wind does the same thing. The wind blows in one direction, and then it's gone. It's past you. And then all of a sudden, here it comes again in the same direction. And you're like, well, how did it do that again? And it just, meaninglessness of, well, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, the sun comes up, the sun goes, running the same circuit over and over again. 
or, or count all the rivers that flow out into the ocean, and yet the ocean never overflows. All the water in the world that flows out into the ocean, and the ocean is never satisfied, still wants more, still can take more. It's not like your cup that eventually you pour water into it and it overflows. Somehow or another, the sea can't get enough. It's never happy. It's never satisfied. Vanity of vanities. Futile, futility of futilities, uh, if you will. It's empty. It's meaningless. It's valueless. It's purposeless. And that's just the natural world. He, he turns his attention to mankind after that, verses 8 to 11. The same is true of your ears. All the things you hear, and yet your head never fills up. All the things you hear and you could still hear more. All the things you see and hear and you still haven't learned all there is to learn. Where's the value in learning if it doesn't get me anywhere? Where's the value in hearing and seeing if it doesn't do anything ultimately? Where's the value in that? And for that matter, verse 11... Some of you, some of you are more into this than others of you. Some of you can do this farther, further, one of those words, than the rest of us. But trace your genealogy. Quick, how far can you go? I, right, I mean, eventually you come to an end. And you realize that even your own ancestors, you've forgotten. That's verse 11. We have gravestones, we have grave markers, and, and you can go and visit, but there comes a point at which even that which is yet to come will one day be forgotten, just as the things that are in our past have been forgotten. You hear his struggle? Where's the hope Where's the value? Where's the meaning in that? And, and that's the key question, verse 3. What exactly do we gain by all the toil at which man toils under the sun? Where's the benefit? Where's the profit? Where's the advantage? Where's the gain? It's a... It's technically a financial term that, that, that expects some sort of gain or, or profit from work, from labor, from all the things that we do. Where's the gain if I'm going to be forgotten, if the sun keeps doing what it does, and, and if you know, this event is not connected to that event, and if this event is going to pass away and that event isn't here yet, but it too is going to pass away, where's the value, where's the gain what good is there for us in this? What meaning can possibly be found in this repetitious, monotonous existence? And everywhere the preacher looks, everywhere you and I look, everywhere George Harrison looked, we see the same thing. We see the exact 
same reality. The sun does its thing. It wakes up in the morning. It runs through the, the sky. Let's do it this way. It runs through the sky. It'll set back this way. And next thing you know, you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be right back over there again. Where's the value in that? Where's the meaning in that? All those rivers and the sea never overflows. Where's the value? Where's the gain? Where's the profit in all of that? Of course, you recognize the preacher limits his examination. He limits his study. And he tells us as much. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Again, verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. He's examined life. He's examining creation under the sun, between the horizons. He's limited his study to what he can see. It shouldn't surprise us that if philosophers limit their study to what they can see, they're left with Hey, this is great. Well, no, maybe it's not so great. Well, hey, this could be really good. Nah, maybe not so much. This is looking down. Well, no, actually, now it's kind of got an upturn. You can see their conflict. You can see their struggle. But there's comfort in this for us. Let's recognize the comfort that the preacher gives to you and me. Because he's limited his search to under the sun and between the horizons. What if, what if we were to look above the sun? What if we were to turn our study beyond the sun to that which we can't see, to that which exists, but it exists outside of this limitation of, of space and time? The writer doesn't want us just to see meaninglessness in life under the sun. He wants us to anticipate meaning in life above the sun. If creation is all there is, then futility reigns. If this is all there is, then all things will pass. And so be it. And what hope and comfort can I possibly have if this creation is all there is. I want you to notice something though. Turn to chapter 4. Because God is not completely absent from the preacher's mind. Chapter 4, verse 14. For he, this is a poor wise youth, for he went from prison to the throne Though in his own kingdom... Well, did I write this down wrong? I wrote it down wrong. But he recognizes... There's a verse somewhere. That he um, recognizes God's existence in the world. The catch is that he doesn't let God's existence affect his knowledge. He doesn't let God's existence affect the way he thinks. He admits there is a God who is at work in this world, but I'm going to ignore him while I examine this world. He 
His problem is that even though he recognizes the reality of God, God never factors into the preacher's thinking. Which, by the way, reminds you of another beetle. John Lennon did this. John Lennon sang um, that he, he begged that we would give peace a chance. He's saying, imagine, and imagine we get rid of all of these things that cause wars. And, and do you remember the list? Religion, national borders, possessions. If we didn't have those, then nobody would fight. Nobody would argue. Do you see? He's putting everything outside of us. And then he turned around and sang, Happy Christmas. You had peace and the absence of war on your lips and you ignored it. You actually sang about the birth of the one who would come and deliver peace and who alone could end all wars and then you let him slip right out of the other ear and ignored him completely and didn't let him affect your thinking. You see their problem? The answer He's looking for the answer the preacher is looking for actually comes out of his mouth. It's actually in his brain and he doesn't ever let it affect his thinking. Where are you looking for meaning in life? Where are you looking for your value? Where are you looking for a sense of, of purpose and value and worth and weight and 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 Meaning to all that you endure. Cancer, the death of loved ones, COVID-19, your house burned down, you lost your job. Fill in the blank. Where's the value? Where's the meaning? How do you get through all of this? Where are you looking for purpose and value to the life that we live between the horizons. You know, the reality is, the preacher's right. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things. He recognizes that there's coming a day when the past is going to be forgotten. Isaiah says the exact same thing in Isaiah 65. In Isaiah 65, uh, Isaiah anticipates that the former troubles of Israel, of God's people, will be forgotten when the recreation of all that sin has broken is finally and completely fulfilled. The reality is there is coming a day when all the past troubles that sin has caused will be forgotten. But that day is not in this life. It's not merely between the horizons. It's coming when the one who has already once come from beyond the sun and invaded this space comes back again and makes all things new. The preacher's problem, and frequently our own problem, is we limit our study. We limit our examination to what we can see, to what our eyes Tell us, tell us to the world under the sun. However, above the sun, 
is the eternal Son of God who has once entered into this creation to redeem it, to fix all that man has broken. And He's one day coming back to make it all right so that these former things might be forgotten. If you want to make sense of our world, you can't do so by looking merely at it. You've got to look above it. God's Word explains His world, not the other way around. We frequently will want to understand His Word by our experience. We should interpret our experience by His Word. Evaluate the world in which we live through the lens of His Word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that does just that. It examines that which you have made. It explains the brokenness. It explains the conflict. It explains the struggle and the trouble that we have in this world. And it also tells us of the only remedy for that struggle. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would Come quickly and set all things right. In the meantime, would you, by your word, by your spirit, gather your chosen people to be with you, to come to saving faith in Christ, and use us even to that end, that we might learn to examine this world by your word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.